How can we invest with confidence when the sands are shifting? COVID's riding second and third waves. Are we in a recession or aren't we? America's in turmoil, yet the share market and much of our property market has performed surprisingly well amidst all the doom and gloom. Turns out governments can print money after all, but how long can the merry-go-round keep going around? Despite the fact that Melbourne is you know, topographically a very different place from Sydney, um, that's gone. And so, you know, it's not surprising that Melbourne prices have fallen since April by close to 5%, whereas, you know, in Sydney, they're down about 2 and in almost every other capital except Perth and in regional areas, they're up quite a lot. You know, I think that trend's going to continue. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're going to tap into the brain of one of Australia's most experienced economists to get his take on quantitative easing, the US election, the coronavirus recession and how our banking system is coping under the strain amongst other things we'll talk about. Now, we're honoured to have Saul Eslake join us. Among other things, Saul is a former Chief Economist of ANZ Bank and of Merrill Lynch Australia and has been a member of the International Conference of Commercial Bank Economists for the last 17 years. And since 2015, he's run his own independent economics consulting service that's called Corinna Economic Advisory. He's a member of expert panels advising the ATO and the Parliamentary Budget Office and as a part-time geek at the University of Tasmania to top it all off. Thank you so much for joining us, Saul. We're really looking forward to hearing your insights in these troubled times. Well, thank you for having me, Veronica and Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely, Saul. So I've seen your name around many times, and, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. I guess um, I used to always say, oh, it's unprecedented. We're in unprecedented times. We haven't thought about this, but I guess everything's unprecedented. But I guess in Saul Eslake's mind, how do you view where we are at, at, a, at, I guess, at a global level right now? Well, it's interesting when you say unprecedented. When this <laughs> virus first came to attention, one of the things I did was to go back to about 100 years ago and yep. remind myself what had happened during the Spanish flu outbreak uh, that came shortly after the end of World War One and see if there was anything that we could learn about what might happen from the history mm. of that episode. And sadly, the economic data was so poor then that <laughs> there wasn't a great deal that you could learn. And I guess it's also the case that the world is just such a different place from what it was then, in particular, the ease with which people up until the virus hit and governments closed international borders, the ease with which people could move from mm. country to country. Mm. You know, I suspect mm. my grandfather, for example, who uh, was at Gallipoli and on the Western Front and for some reason stayed in London until 1919 or thereabouts after the war ended, he probably brought it back with him 
um, as mm. many other Australian soldiers would have done coming mm. back from the war. Uh, but it took them three months or more to get back from London to, to Australia. And, of course, there weren't hundreds of or tens of thousands of Australians yeah. uh, overseas in other countries you know, who trapped who couldn't get back. So, you know, I, I certainly was aware that states closed their borders to each other during the Spanish outbreak, flu outbreak, for example. Mm. Uh, uh, but that was much easier to do because there were no planes. Uh, there wasn't a lot of shipping except between Tasmania and the mainland. And uh, all you really had to do was close down the railways. And, uh, and that's mm. what they did. And again, there were examples of, as there were even more so in the United States, different states and different cities making different choices about how extensively to lock down and how quickly to open up. Yeah. And that had consequences for the experience or not of second or third waves. Um, and mm. some of those episodes are being repeated. But apart from that, there's certainly nothing in my lifetime or my career as an economist that gives you much additional insight into uh, what might happen. And just as the medical profession have been learning about the virus and adapting how they treat people who've caught it as time has gone along, you know, governments and economic policymakers and economic analysts and commentators like myself have sort of learnt as we've gone along um, how this virus and the way governments respond to it can affect economic activity. And we're learning about what sort of economic policy responses, whether it's from governments or central banks, uh, are most effective in not only minimising the damage caused by the virus and restrictions, but also now particularly what might be most effective in underpinning a sustainable economic recovery. So I know you've done a lot of research around this space and I think you've got like a weekly sort of newsletter that keeps everyone up to date on what's happening. You know, I guess your views probably changed over time, but I guess at the start of November where we are now, what's your sort of view on what's most likely to happen? Are we going to get a vaccine? Are we... You know, are we going to just get continual lockdowns? Are we just going to give up on lockdowns? What do you, what do you think is going to play out, I guess, here and globally? Well, I think the first thing to get clear is that there will be no sustainable economic recovery until we have a vaccine mm. or until we have found some other way to keep the virus at bay if we haven't got a vaccine. Mm. And until we have a vaccine, and, you know, I've I've got no reason to challenge the assumption that the government made in framing the federal budget that a vaccine will become widely available in Australia towards the end of next year. I mean, that's an assumption. They had to make an assumption of that nature because if you don't, then you can't really make any other sensible forecasts about economic activity or unemployment. You can't make a judgment about when international borders will open. So, you know, I don't yeah. have any greater insight into that than the government, but I think the assumption mm. the government's made reasonable, and I'm certainly prepared to use it in the way I think about the economy as well. And if it turns out when we get to this time next year and a vaccine isn't available, then we, you know, we'll have to adjust our forecasts and expectations accordingly. But uh, I think it, we we really are learning, and Europe's going to learn again the hard way that and and. Yeah. Until you've got on top of this virus and can keep it at bay, you're not going to have a sustainable economic recovery. So that's the first point. The second point I think experience is teaching us is that there isn't really a serious medium trade-off between the economy and health. 
that you know yeah. that some politicians have said, well, you know, we the virus is doing and restrictions are doing so much damage to the economy, so we need to open up even though we haven't got on top of the virus. Yeah. You know, that's the approach they took in the United States. It's the approach that they took particularly in the United Kingdom, and it hasn't yeah. worked. And in the mm. same way, in say to take Sweden as an example, which never went down the route of imposing restrictions that most other countries had, they haven't had a better economic experience than countries that impose tougher restrictions. And the reason mm. is that people are scared of the virus, particularly older people for whom it's much more deadly. And whether governments tell them not to do things or not, they will refrain from doing things that they think make it more likely that they will catch the virus and potentially die of it. So while the virus is out there, even when governments have removed some of the most stringent restrictions, people are going to be wary of, as we can see, getting on public transport. They're going to be wary of catching planes. They're going to worry that if they do catch a plane, whether it's to another state or to another country, that they could get trapped uh, in the event that there's an outbreak, either in some other country that they happen to be visiting or back here in Australia and that they won't be able to get home, people are just going to be much more cautious about those sorts of things. And I think people are also going to be cautious for a while if, for example, they're in a job that they know is being supported by JobKeeper and they know that that's going to expire on the 31st of March, that's going to make them more cautious about spending the tax cuts that the government has given them, for example. And similarly, people, you know, there's about 11% of people with mortgages who've taken up the option of deferring payments on those mortgages. They know that's going to yeah. come to an end at some point. And I think people in that position who you know, are who do have more money in their pockets as a result of the tax cuts that were in the budget, uh, they're going to think, maybe I should be putting that into my mortgage yeah. offset account or you know, prepaying a bit of debt rather than going out and spending it, which is, of course, what the government hopes that they will do. It's it. I find this all really fascinating because we're sort of trying to apply, like generally speaking, we're all trying to apply our knowledge of what's happened in the past and what we want to happen, and yep. you know, and, and like you say that you know it, we've got evidence that there's no medium sort of trade off between economy and health, and it, it's it's like the illusion of control, right? So I mean, that's a, a, a behavioural bias. You know, we love behavioural biases on the elephant in the room here, and. It, even if we get a vaccination for this or vaccine for this one, you know, epidemiologists are saying that, that there'll be another and another and another. It's just the nature of it. So we sort of need to grapple with a new reality rather than perhaps an economic recovery. Aren't we, aren't we sort of on the cusp of the need for structural change? Hey, Veronica, I think you're right about that. Um, you know, when people talk about returning to normal, um, I think, some people get this, some people don't. Normal is not going to be in the future what normal was in the past. Mm. You know, there are some things that we simply will not do mm. with the same frequency or enthusiasm that we used to do, and there are going to be other consequences from that. And this is, I mean, to be fair to governments, they have a real dilemma here between doing things that help support existing jobs and businesses, which has been the focus of measures like JobKeeper, has just been yeah. to save jobs and to keep businesses afloat so that, you know, quote, when this is over, unquote, uh, people will have jobs to go back to because their employers will still be there. There's, you know, and that's understandable, particularly in the early phase of this 
crisis when nobody really knew how long it was going to last. The emphasis was just on preserving things until such date as we could open up. But as it's gone on and as we've realized precisely, as you say, that, you know, it, it's still going to be with us in some form or another. People are starting to recognize that the post-COVID world is going to be different in various ways. And that means that at some point, we've got to step away from measures that are primarily designed to save existing jobs and businesses towards measures that are going to underwrite the post-COVID world, whatever it is. And we don't have to be completely passive about that. We can, and I think governments around the world are trying, to make active choices that are designed to shape that world in some way. So mm. you know, sometimes they're good choices, sometimes they're maybe not so good choices. For example, I'm really sceptical of the idea that you know we can in the post-COVID world go back to being some kind of manufacturing superpower, you know, as if we ever <laughs> were. Um, you know, mm. there, there there are good reasons why Australia's manufacturing sector is significantly smaller than the manufacturing sectors of most other advanced economies. And a big part of the reason is that Australia's mining sector is five times as big a share of our economy as it is of most other economies. And our agricultural sector is at least twice the size of the agricultural yeah. sectors of most other economies with the exception in New Zealand. And a simple fact that politicians really struggle to get is that the sum of the different sectors' shares of GDP can't be more than 100%. So <laughs> if you're going to have a bigger mining sector than most other countries, and it would be crazy if we didn't, given the factor endowment that Australia has, and mm. if you're going to have a bigger agricultural sector than most other countries, and again, it would be crazy if we didn't because agriculture is something that we're good at, then something else has to be smaller as a percentage of GDP because they can't sum to more than 100. And yeah. again, given that you know the richer a country is and its people are, the more of their incomes they want to tr spend on services rather than goods, and given that most services can't be traded, you, know, you can't import haircuts and things like that. Um, you know, most of the economy is going to be in the production of services in some form, which really mm. only leaves manufacturing as the sector that can be smaller. And Australia's only ever had a manufacturing sector that's been close to the same size as the share of GDP as other Western countries during that period when we used to force Australians to pay inflated prices for what were usually badly made goods simply so that we could say that they were made in Australia, even often though the companies that made them were foreign owned and the profits went back in the case of the car industry to, De to Detroit or Nagoya. Um, but somehow we used to think that because we had people screwing nuts on the wheels of Holdens or sewing buttons on shirts, you know, that we were a sort of modern country with a manufacturing sector. And mm. the idea that we can subsidise our way back to that, I think is misleading. But on the other hand, I think, for example, the idea that, more people can work from home, that you know, yeah. maybe it's not such a good idea for you know two-thirds of the population to spend an hour at the top and bottom of each day commuting from the outer suburbs to the inner cities, uh, and that maybe there's a serious opportunity here for regional cities to become places where people want to live and can work from. And you know if they do have to go into the CBD of Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane for an afternoon or a day a week, then you know they can do that but they can do it more comfortably than the morning or evening commutes. Mm. And, you know, these sorts of th – that in turn, for example, has significant implications for um, the viability of all the little businesses in the 
centers of our cities that you know, sell coffee and clean shoes and do haircuts and do dry cleaning for the people who work in those city offices, it has implications for whether or not there's still going to be the same demand for high-rise apartments in the inner city areas, which I've heard mm. some people describe as vertical cruise ships, um, <laughs> you know, that, uh, <laughs> that there are some quite profound implications you know, for yeah. the property market, but, uh, but also for the whole structure and functioning of our economy. Mm. Yeah, I guess uh, Melbourne's had it the worst, right? So, well, Victoria, um, I mean, how do you think that what they've gone through versus, say, Sydney or versus, say, Perth or down where you are in Tasmania, how do you feel like that where you lived through this period is going to affect you more than others, do you believe, or...? Well, I suspect it may. Uh, yeah, I mean, it probably won't in 10 years' time perhaps, but I think in the period mm. between now and then there will be some lasting implications of the different experiences that different states have had. And the one that stands out as being different is obviously Victoria. Now, there's a mm. tendency on the part of most Australians, I think, including those who live in other states, to attribute Victoria's awful second wave to bad luck and to think that, you know, they're but for the grace of God go we and hence haven't been too critical of Victoria. There's been a bit of that at the federal level, of course, and that's been partisan political. But, you know, as someone who lived in Melbourne for more than half my life during my yep. uh, career in the in the financial sector, you know, I, I like Melbourne. Uh, I care about what happens there. But uh, I, that experience has also made me look very carefully at what has happened in Victoria. And I have absolutely no doubt that Victoria's second wave was not a matter of bad luck, but was rather the result of a combination of incompetence on the part of the Victorian government and some of its administrative agencies and deliberate choices which Victoria made, which were very different from the choices made by other states and in particular New South Wales. And what I mean by that is that and again, I'm going to focus particularly on the comparisons between Victoria and New South Wales, since during the first lockdown, Victoria and New South Wales faced a very similar risk profile, given that Sydney mm. and Melbourne were the principal points of entry into Australia for mm. returning Australians and visiting foreigners at a time when the main way the virus got spread was by people bringing it with them from other parts of the world to us in Australia that would otherwise have been pretty isolated. Mm. Now, what's interesting is that consistent with the way Victorian governments have always done things, they took a very heavy-handed policing approach to enforcing lockdown regulations. You know, I produced some research showing that in the five years to 2018-19, that is before this crisis broke, Victoria collected an average of $120 per head per annum from its citizens in the, uh, by way of fines. <laughs> mostly for traffic offences, and the average for the rest of the country was about $80 per head per annum. And yeah. anyone who's ever driven in Victoria and New South Wales knows that in New South Wales they tell you where the speed cameras are, yeah. and, <laughs> you know, and it's so obvious that if you get booked by one, you really should be booked for driving without due care and attention as well because it is so obvious. <laughs> yeah. And if you, do, you know, if you get caught for speeding or something else on a long weekend or a public holiday in New South Wales, you lose double the points as well because mm, you know, yeah. New South Wales and Queensland, they want drivers to slow down, mm. and if they won't slow down, they want them off the road. In Victoria, by contrast, where they don't call them speed cameras, they call them road safety cameras, it's almost Orwellian, there are a hell of a lot more of them. They don't tell you where they are, and 
the fines are much bigger. The tolerance threshold is only three Ks over the limit rather than seven or ten as it is in most other states. And mm. you know, they don't do double points for breaches on long weekends because they want your money. And they get it. And <laughs> they took the same approach to policing the first wave of lockdown. So during that first wave between late March and the end of May, Victoria collected $2.2 million more in fines than every other state put together. They collected an average of $90 in fines per 100,000 people. Wow. New South Wales, by contrast, collected about $35. Per because, you know, because Victoria just loves to use the cops as a revenue-raising force. And you know, so the critical decision here was that Victoria let security guards monitor hotel quarantine. Now, as someone who's long been a critic of the security theatre that we've had to endure since 9-11, you know, stuff that is doesn't really make yeah. you any safer when you get mm. on the plane, but, you know, its purpose really is to make you think that the risk of terrorism is much greater than it really is, so that when ASIO comes along wanting the power to tap phones without warrants or raid journalists' homes without warrants, people will think, well, yeah, I guess they've really got to do that because, hey, there's a terrorist on every corner threatening to kill us. You know, the reality. The reality is being that you know uh, more people, more Australians have been killed by snakes and crocodiles and dogs than by terrorists, or that more you know more people have drowned in their bathtubs than have been killed by terrorists over the last few <laughs> years. But the government doesn't want us to know that; they want to think it's really serious. And you know, so in Victoria, they let security guards do this, and of course they were hopeless at it, which is what you would expect if you assign this task to people who get their kicks mm. out of confiscating shaving cream and nail clippers and humiliating people with hip replacements. The reason that they the, the cops refused to do it because they wanted to be out there fining people. Uh, I don't know why the Victorian government didn't take up the offer of defence personnel to oversight hotel quarantine as New South Wales did, but the results were obviously different. And then mm. because Victoria had this heavy-handed policing regime, which, as I say, was designed to collect revenue rather than to keep people safe. Uh, when the first lockdown ended, um, Victorians displayed what the Premier of Victoria so charmingly displayed complacency in kind of neglecting social distancing norms. And I reckon that was because of the sense of relief that Victorians felt when they got out from under what had been the most oppressive yeah. policing regime in the country. And then, of course, you know, I'm not cool. Once the second wave started, Victoria had no alternative but to lockdown. You know, they had to do it. And you only have to look at what's happened in places like the US or Europe, which refused to lock down. You know, what happens if you don't do that? So they did the right thing in locking down. But again, the heavy-handed policing associated with it, you know, the, the $10,000 fines, the drones in the air, checking that people weren't having grand final parties. You know, someone wants to find a Puritan as someone who's troubled by the thought that someone somewhere might be happy. <laughs> and that was the approach that, you know, that, that Victoria took to policing the lockdown. You know, the, the police commissioner, Shane Patton, was boasting about the fines they were going to collect and telling mm. Victorians that the police would not exercise discretion in the case of, you know, first offences, minor or inadvertent or trivial breaches, as enforcement officers in every other state. And uh, the Victorian police think there's something shameful about exercising discretion, which probably explains why Victorian police shoot more people every year than police in mm. other states and territories do. So, as I say, I think the, the bad experience Victoria had 
was not bad luck. It was a result of incompetence and bad choices by the Victorian government. But there will be lasting consequences of this. Victoria has done itself lasting damage as a destination of choice for overseas migrants and for people moving to other states. So if you look at the figures, Victoria, which has a quarter of Australia's population, had been attracting 33% of the overseas migrants to Australia in the five years before the pandemic hit. And Victoria had also been one of only three states that were attracting on net migrants from other states, the other two, Queensland and Tasmania, interestingly, Mm. in Mm. the last four years. And we might come back to that. But now, and you know, the Federal Treasury put up the back of budget paper number three in October's federal budget, where they talk about federal-state financial relations. Victoria, The Federal Treasury forecasts that Victoria will get virtually no interstate migrants for the next three or four years because people aren't going to want to go there. And more Victorians are going to want to think about moving out to somewhere else. And for a state which has been disproportionately dependent on population growth, as a driver of economic growth and a state where rapid population growth fueled by interstate and overseas migration has been a major contributor to Melbourne prices becoming almost as expensive as Sydney prices, despite the fact that Melbourne is you know, topographically a very different place from Sydney, um, that's gone. And so, mm. you know, it's not surprising that Melbourne prices have fallen since April by close to 5%. Whereas, you know, in Sydney, they're down about two and in almost every other capital except Perth and in regional areas, they're up quite a lot. You know, I think that trend is going to continue. The property market, I think, is to some extent artificial because uh, people who might otherwise have been in difficulty haven't needed to service their mortgages and because people who might have otherwise have been unemployed have kept their jobs because of JobKeeper. Neither of those things are going to last forever. We are at some point going to see you know, some forced sales, hopefully not a lot, but some forced sales. Uh, we're not going to have overseas migrants for another two years bidding at auctions or wanting to build new houses. We're probably not going to have as much interstate migration. It's a great opportunity for first-time buyers to get into the market, and we're seeing evidence that the sort of schemes that the federal and state governments have been putting forward for first-time buyers this time are actually working which they normally don't, um, and mm. that's good. But I think particularly in Victoria, where there aren't going to be the interstate and overseas migrants that across the system as a whole have been crucial to supporting Melbourne prices, they're not going to be there. So I suspect the trajectory for the Melbourne property market is going to be rather different from that of most of Australia's other capitals, uh, you know, once the market completely opens up and you know hopefully stays that way until we get a vaccine yeah you said something interesting about the four sales and the sort of payment holidays it's going to be interesting in the next two to three months how many actually roll over again um you know there's because they've got six months and they potentially could get another four months um and so we're already starting to see them drop off a cliff in terms of the actual amount number of people getting payment holidays but cba just announced this week that They've also trying to get um, an exception, I guess, where they can uh, basically let a m- more a mono- what's the word moratorium that basically anyone who uh, has been paying their loan prior to COVID um, and had no problems with paying their loan um, give them extra time basically 
And if that happens, that all the banks can basically give everyone that if you're paying your mortgage well before COVID, you can have another year or you can have a two years. It's going to be interesting because those payment holidays are basically pointless. The bank can basically give you an indefinite payment holiday. Um, and that will basically really fragment the market. People who were having problems with their mortgage before, well, they're going to have to sell. Um, but if you were fine before, you can just keep on basically accruing debt um, until you get back into the workforce. And so that's a really interesting thing to watch over the, the coming months, what actually happens there. I mean, on a different tact, Saul, I mean, uh, the RBA, it's good timing for this podcast, um, has made some pretty crazy calls this week. What's your thoughts on what they've done and, um, you know, have they done, should they have done more, should they have done less? What's your, yeah. what's your view? Well, just, just before we get to the Reserve Bank, just to come back on a, a couple of the points you made there about the mortgage repayment holidays. Yes, obviously, it, it, the banks don't want to force people into uh, you know, mortgagee sales unless it's absolutely unavoidable you know, because they're going to take losses as well as, uh, as their customers in those circumstances yeah. usually. But there are limits to what the banks can do. I mean, in the first place, of course, you know, they, they are subject to regulatory requirements and accounting standards to yeah. make provision, which reduces their profits and their capacity to pay dividends for loans that aren't being serviced beyond the point. And I mean, the regulators can exercise a bit of forbearance in that regard. But, you know, we've already seen the banks that have reported thus far, you know, making increased provisions for potential bad debts. And mm. you know, the, the, the people who lend money to banks, the wholesale funders, they pay attention to these sorts of things. The rating agencies pay attention to these sorts of things. There are limits to the extent to which banks can forego ongoing interest income in these circumstances without damaging their own credit ratings. The other thing is, of course, is that the, the banks are foregoing this income forever. You know, The interest that isn't being paid is being added to the outstanding principal of the people yeah. who are exercising these payment options. And there will come a time if these go on indefinitely where they're going to breach loan confidence and you know exceed the debt to equity ratios that the banks regard as providing them with the margin of safety they require in the event of a default situation. And so at some point, these do have to come to an end. And as I say, depending on what the rest of the economy is doing and you know, what first home buyers in particular are doing or whether they can extend the repayment holidays for long enough until overseas migrants are allowed back into the country and become an important source of demand for real estate again, you know, I don't know, but uh, there is a limit to that process. So to, to come back to the question about the Reserve Bank, yeah. you know, I mean, the Reserve Bank's obviously been thinking about this for a while and they had flagged for you know four or five weeks that they were not so much thinking about whether they could do more because they'd come to that conclusion already, but what exactly more mm. that they could do. And you know, they've done what Phil Lowe, the governor, said immediately afterwards, as much as they can possibly do on the interest rate front in reducing the official cash rate to 10 basis points and you know, probably knowing that just as while the cash rate was officially 25, it was in practice 13, uh, you know, the cash rate will probably settle at maybe 0.05% or something like that. Um, and not all of that's going to be passed on to variable loan mortgage customers because the banks also have to think about their deposit customers as well. And, you know, the more deposits they don't pay any interest on, the more likely it may be that people don't put their money in banks anymore <laughs> and then banks don't have money to lend. 
um, and you don't want to be in that position. So, um, yeah, yeah the, the governor of the Reserve Bank said, you know, we don't want to go negative. Uh, we don't want negative interest rates. And unless the Federal Reserve adopts negative interest rates, which they don't want to do either, then the RBA isn't going to copy the European Central Bank or the Bank of Japan or possibly the Reserve Bank of New Zealand that go down that path. Mm. It'll do damage to the banking system. You know, Reserve Bank of New Zealand doesn't care if negative interest rates do damage to New Zealand's banking system because New Zealand's banking system is a subsidiary of the Australian banking system. You know, it doesn't cost them anything. Whereas the, the Australian Reserve Bank does have to think about, you know, what a period of negative interest rates would mean for the profitability of the Australian banking system and its capacity to lend. And there's no evidence from the places that have had negative interest rates, like Japan and continental Europe, that it does any good. And the best piece of evidence for that is that you know Japan and Europe had negative interest rates for, for some years before the pandemic hit. And yet, despite the fact that both of these countries, like Australia and the US, found themselves confronting the worst recession that they'd had in 80 years, did either of them do the obvious thing if negative interest rates worked, which was to make them more negative? <laughs> and the answer is no, they didn't. Mm. So, you know, that, that I think that's pretty clear from the experience of countries that have actually had negative rates, that negative rates don't really any do any good. So there's not much more, there's, there's nothing more that the Reserve Bank can do on the interest rate front. But as they've yep. been at pains to point out, that doesn't mean to say there's nothing at all they can do. And there are two very important things, and I'm talking particularly here from the perspective of the economy, that they did do. One is that they gave a guarantee that they're not going to raise interest rates for at least three years. Now, that's important for property buyers because one of the things that property yeah. buyers think about when they're taking out a mortgage or deciding how big a mortgage they can afford to take out is they think, well, yeah, okay, the interest rates are pretty good now, but how am I going to cope when rates go up at some point? Absolutely. And the banks, of course, yeah, now, particularly post-Oil Commission, are pretty diligent in asking that question of customers themselves. They might say, well, yeah, the mortgage rate's three and a half, but can you afford to service a mortgage of this size if mortgage rates got to five? in three years' time. And, and and they then take the answer to that question into account in deciding how much they're going to lend or the customer takes into account deciding how much they want to borrow. And now the Reserve Bank's saying, look, you've got at least three years before rates yeah. are going to go up. And in that time, of course, people take out a mortgage and you know they can pay down more than they have to, or if they happen to come in to, you know, if they they sort of make a killing on the stock market or win Tats Lotto, then you know they can pay that down and be much more confident about the first three or more years of that mortgage. And I think that will be a positive factor for them. And in fact, the Reserve Bank's really saying that unlike their past practice, which has been to start raising interest rates when they think inflation is about to go up, rather than waiting until it actually has, well, now they're saying they're going to wait until they see the whites of inflation's eyes before they start firing mm. at it, before raising interest rates. And instead, they're saying, you know, what we're really focused on now is not inflation, but unemployment. We want to get yeah. unemployment down to levels that are going to generate faster wages growth. And if the US experience is any guide, that means looking for an unemployment rate with a three handle on it, not five. Yeah. So it yeah. could be a long time 
before rates start to go up. And, and so that's one key message that the Reserve Bank is doing. Another thing that the Reserve Bank's doing this, uh, they've said they're going to buy $100 billion worth of government bonds over the next six months. And part of the aim of doing that is to drive longer term rates down. Because if they're out there buying bonds, they're going to be pushing the price of those bonds up, which means the yields on them are going to come down. Now, one of the consequences of that is that it should put down the pressure on longer-term interest rates that price off longer-term bond rates. So we're talking here about five- and ten-year mortgages, for example. And they haven't mm. historically been very popular in Australia, unlike the United States, where most people borrow, for most people, the mortgage rate that matters is the 30-year fixed rate mortgage. You know, that's not mm. part of the Australian borrowing ethos. And one yeah. of the reasons, of course, is historically fixed rates have been higher than variable rates. And also in Australia, unlike the United States, fixed rates means what the word says, it's fixed. And if subsequently fixed rates go down, then getting out of your fixed rate mortgage in order to take advantage of a lower rate to refinance at a lower rate is very expensive. You know, the break points that the banks charge you are very expensive, unlike the US where that's a comparatively simple transaction to refinance at lower rates. But while I don't think that's going to change, banks are still going to charge you if you want to get out of a fixed rate contract. It may yeah. well be that people have opportunities to borrow for five or 10 years fixed at unprecedentedly low rates. And that could be another positive for the property market as well in the face of what are otherwise headwinds in the absence of you know a large number of overseas migrants and so forth. Yeah, so that happened yesterday. So we... Um you know, CBA was the first, but all the other banks kind of quickly followed, which they all seem to be doing um, this year, just basically matching each other um, rather than having different prices. Um, so you can get four years now at basically 1.99 or 1.98, which um, is is that forward guidance. That's what the, the customer or the borrower is thinking when they're taking out the loan today, at least for the next four years, I'm not worried about rates going up. Um, but you're right, that there's no reason why that can't be for five years or it can't yeah. be for 10 years. And um, you know, we, you know, more than five years doesn't really exist out there. No bank offers great rates more than five years, but who's to say that they won't, you know, and uh, keeping customers for 10 years could be one of the things that do, does pop out of this. That's right. And, you know, the, although this isn't as relevant to the property market, the other thing the Reserve Bank's trying to achieve by this you know, quantitative easing, as they call it, by buying 100 billion of bonds, is that they want to bring the exchange rate down as well, the Australian dollar down. And you know, one of the reasons why the Australian dollar has been you know, above 70 cents for most of the past three months, having initially crashed to 56 during the pandemic, yeah. more, more than it did during the global financial crisis. But it's gone back to over 70, partly because the iron ore price has been so strong, but also because although our long-term rates have been at record lows for us, they've nonetheless been materially higher than bond yields in other countries. You know, so in Germany and France and Japan, uh, 10-year bond yield rates are slightly negative. Um, in the US, the 10-year bond rate has been about 0.6 of a percent to 0.7. Here it's been 0.8 to 1. That's been attractive to international bond investors. It's why the federal government has had no trouble financing its humongous budget deficits. You know, at large as they are, for every dollar that the Australian government has wanted to borrow by selling bonds in the last seven months, they've been offered $3.70 yeah. because Australian bond yields are so attractive to fixed income managers from around the world. And mm. that demand from foreign bond fund managers is one of the main reasons that push the dollar up. 
So the Reserve Bank hopes that by you know, uh, pushing bond yields down at the long end, there won't be as much demand from foreigners to buy Australian government bonds, and therefore there'll be less upward pressure on the currency. And at the margin, I mean, they're not overstating this, and neither am I, but at the margin, a lower exchange rate is better for exporters and better for companies that keep compete with imports. And you know that might also help them to achieve their inflation and employment goals. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. One of the things that you talked about earlier was that, you know, if we thought that our way out of COVID was to become a manufacturing powerhouse, it's not really um, our strength, our strong suit uh, in this country. But I guess what we are seeing in this conversation you're just talking about now is reminding us how important the globe is and what happens Mm. in the globe and how our our place in it. Now, we're recording this uh, two days after the RBA did drop those did uh, drop the cash rate and um but also you know the day after the well two days after the u.s election we still don't quite know what's happening but at this point it looks like biden might come in ahead what what do you think the outcome of this election will be for the australian economy well i think if biden wins the election which i agree with you that's what seems the most likely outcome at the moment and provided that trump doesn't succeed in having the election decided not by the American people, or at least not by the 300 American people, but by the nine people on the Supreme Court, three of whom he's appointed, and where he hopes he's gerrymandered it so that he's got a 6-3 majority. Um, mm. Yeah, and the consequences of that for the American democracy might be just horrendous. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, I, I'm not sure that the American people would accept another Bush v. Gore outcome as readily as they did then, not least because Gore accepted it. In 2000, you know, he said to his people, look, you know, it's over, don't contest it. I'm not Mm. sure. I I don't know whether Joe Biden would say that, particularly given the way that the Supreme Court in the US has been stacked by the Republicans since then, um, or whether or not, irrespective of what Biden says, whether, you know, people who voted for Biden would accept that. But it Mm. also seems as though at the moment the Democrats are not guaranteed of getting control of the Senate. So uh, it may be that while Biden's the president, he can't get through the legislative measures that were part of his platform or you know it could be that kamala harris is the vice president uh, and just about the only thing the vice president does of any significance is to preside over the senate and if there's a if it's deadlock 50 50 then she gets a casting vote she gets to decide what happens so she might mm. be spending an awful lot of time in the senate Rather mm. than you know, in in Blair House or wherever it is that the vice president lives, or you know, sitting next to Joe Biden helping him run the country, which is what <laughs> I think she would prefer to do. But mm. <laughs> anyway, um, so I I think under those circumstances, if if Biden's the president, but he doesn't have full capacity to get his legislative program through Congress, mm. then uh, there's going to be a degree of frustration. Um, but 
there are still things that Biden as president can do using his executive authority. And ironically, of course, many of the things that Trump has done has been not through <laughs> legislation, but through exercising executive authority. It's just that the difference would be that this would be in a, exercised in a way that makes the US and the world a better place rather than a worse place as Trump has done. <laughs> so, you know, we have, for example, more cooperation about climate change, which will, you know, make some interesting dynamics for the Morrison government that will be something of an outlier. You know, and something that we have to think about here now is mm. Biden, has, Biden has said that he would take the US back into the Paris uh, Accords on Climate Change. And the Democratic platform also commits the US to imposing what sometimes get called carbon tariffs on imports from countries that aren't doing anything to reduce their emissions or haven't signed up to zero emissions targets. And the EU has been wanting to do that for a long time, but couldn't do it unless the US does. Japan and Korea have both in the past week committed themselves to that. And so, you know, this this makes Australia even more of an outlier on climate change than it has been for the last 10 years. So there's an interesting dynamic for us there. But it's also, I think, that, um, you know, one of the things Trump has tried to do out of his misguided campaign to make America great again has been to nobble or undermine all of the important international institutions that have helped to uphold the post-war order, that is the post-World War II order, that has been so crucial to the prosperity of so many other countries, especially in the last 30 years. And Trump has tried to trash that. You know, for example, he's nobbled mm. the World Trade Organization, which is meant to be resolving trade disputes by refusing to allow appointments to be made to the judicial tribunals the World Trade Organization has, that countries who are aggrieved by the discriminatory actions of other countries can take and get some enforcement. And this is important to Australia because we're now being targeted even more strongly by China with discriminatory trade measures. And there's not much we can do about it because we can't appeal to the WTO because the WTO hasn't got any people who can hear our appeals because mm. the, the Trump administration has nobbled it because they don't like the WTO. You know, that that is there to uphold the rules of international trade. And Trump wanted to break the rules of international trade out of his you know perverted campaign to so-called you know, make America great again and, you know, being Mr. Tariff Man and all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, Biden understands that he's probably not going to reduce America's tariffs on China, but he's not going to add to them. And he's probably going to, you know, put the United States back into a leadership role in the sort of international institutions that America, more than any other country, helped to establish in the years after the Second World War, and which have been so crucial to middling powers like Australia, who don't have the might to impose their own will on other countries. So I think that's the thing that's important to us. The other thing that's obviously terribly important to us is our economic relationship with China, which is a very unusual yeah. one by Western country standards. You know, most most Western or advanced countries are exporters of manufactured goods and importers of commodities. And that means that for them, China's emergence as the biggest exporter of manufactured goods and the biggest importer of commodities in the world has been a bad thing because China has competed away their exports and it's also pushed up the price of the things that they, like China, imports. And we're the opposite of that. You know, we are not, never have been a big exporter of manufactured goods. So China conquering those markets, you know, yeah, it's wiped out a few Australian companies that probably should never have been in there in the first place. But uh, it hasn't hurt our exports all that much. And it's been an absolute bonanza for the prices of the things that we sell, like iron ore and coal and gas and even so, you know, beef and wool. 
prices are higher than they otherwise would have been because China mm. been buying a lot of them. So we've become uh, quite rich on the back of what China's been doing, but the downside is now that we're more dependent on China as an export market than any other country in the Western world, and more dependent than most other developing countries as well. We're mm. more dependent on China as an export market than we have been on any single country since the 1950s, when you know, most of our stuff went to the UK, which of course we used to think of as the mother country, and we never really had any major political disputes. But now we are very dependent, not only as an export market, but as a source of imports, on a country that sees the world very differently from us and has now decided to make an example of us uh, you know, to demonstrate to other countries, particularly in the region, what might happen to them mm. if, for example, they protest against the imposition of draconian security laws on Hong Kong, or if they have tea with the Dalai Lama, or if they wink at their Taiwanese counterparts, or if they kind of ask, you know, is what China doing in Xinjiang, you know, locking up millions of people in so-called re-education camps, you know, is that really kind of good practice for a country mm. that wants to be middle income? The Chinese are going to punish us um, to make sure that other countries in the region get the message that what will happen to them if they have the temerity to view the world in ways other than the way Beijing thinks it ought to be uh, viewed. And although the Chinese can't do anything about their dependence on our iron ore, which makes up more than 50% of what we sell to them. They hate it, but Brazil can't supply them with the iron ore that we want. Yeah. Although they're trying to get mines up in West Africa, that's going to take them at least five years. So they're still going to be dependent on iron ore. But everything else that they import from us, you know, both types of coal, beef, wool, barley, wine, seafood, um, <laughs> milk, <laughs> you know, they're all going to be in trouble. And, you know, that's another of the headwinds that Australia is going to have to contend with as we chart the post-COVID world, is that a lot of our prosperity that's been driven, you know, by a combination of selling stuff to China at high prices and a high rate of population growth driven by immigration. Now, they've been two of the pillars of our, up until March, 30 years almost of uninterrupted economic growth. Those pillars aren't going to be there. But we also have a bit of a, a weakness, don't we, too, because the banking sector is is so dominant in our share market and yet the banking system, well, the, the four majors anyway, have really seemed to have borne the brunt of supporting the government in uh, stimulus measures, you know, for the economy. So, and then it's all interwoven with the property market, of course, and construction. Yeah. Um, but we're a bit vulnerable there, aren't we? Well, yes, that's right. And in fact, what you've touched on, Veronica, is the third pillar of our very strong economic growth over the last, you know, our capacity to go almost three decades without a recession, as conventionally defined. The three underpinnings of that have been, you know, population growth that's been a percentage point per annum faster than the average for other Western nations. If we hadn't had that, that that one and a yeah. half percent per annum population growth. You know, we wouldn't have gone thirty years without a recession, as conventionally defined. We'd have had at least one, and possibly two, during that period. So that's one. China is the second one, which we've talked about, and the third one has been our housing boom. You know, both in the sense that you know we've had this enormous increase in house prices over the last thirty years, from which you know most Australians have benefited at least on paper. It's been, I think, more of a disadvantage than most people are willing to acknowledge for yeah. people in their 20s and 30s who've not been able to achieve home ownership 
at the same rate that their parents and grandparents did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You know, they, the, the home ownership rate in Australia at the last census in 2016 was the lowest that it had been since the census of 1954. Mm. And for people aged under 35, the home ownership rate was the lowest it had been since 1947. Uh, that doesn't get as much attention as it should. But for most Australians, the boom in property prices you know, had made them feel wealthier, and that had in turn encouraged them to spend more, which had created more jobs and added yeah. economic growth. That's not going to happen again. So you know, that's the third underpinning. This is why I think you know, the post-COVID normal is not going to be like the pre-COVID normal was. We're going to have to find new avenues for economic growth. And you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I know where all of those are, but to go back to the point that Veronica made about our stock market, you know, our stock market is basically dominated by miners and banks. Yeah. Right? And mining companies have you know, had it very good, but nobody seriously believes that commodity prices are going to go up from here. You know, over time, they're going to go down. And yeah. you know, that's going to impact the fortunes of our mining sector. And likewise, as, as you said, Veronica, the banks have borne the brunt of uh, providing support to households and businesses adversely affected by the virus or by restrictions. The government doesn't like banks. You know, there are votes to be had in bashing banks. That's why the banks have been explicitly excluded from JobKeeper, for example, and why the government imposed this special tax on banks in 2018, the, the major bank levy. You know, that remember that that's expressed as a percentage of their deposits. Right? Hmm. But if you express it as a percentage of their profits, <laughs> bearing in mind that their profits will have gone down a lot this year. Right? Mm. Um, Banks are probably going to be paying tax if you add company tax and express the major bank levy as a percentage, not of deposits, but of profits. The tax rate that the banks are going to be paying is probably going to be over 50% in the current financial year. Nobody looks at it in that way. But if mm. you did, I think people would think that's quite striking. But of course, you know, because the public hates banks because of the things that were exposed in the Royal Commission. And although the, the coalition in particular is very happy to accept donations from banks and other big companies, um, you know, they, they know that there are votes out there in beating the banks up around the head. Uh, so, mm. you know, again, from a shareholder's point of view, this doesn't look so good. And the reason the Australian market has underperformed so many, we don't, we don't really have a tech sector. Yeah, you've got Afterpay and CSL, I suppose, but that's about it as far as the tech yeah. sector is concerned. And so, you know, what we really ought, need to be thinking about is what are the areas of economic activity, whether it's tech, whether there's, there are things we can do in food processing and minerals processing. Uh, we could do a lot more in those areas if we could actually get a sensible and sustainable energy policy that would last more than the life of a single parliament. And then, you know, we ought to be doing energy intensive things based on sustainable renewable energy mm. that might underpin some areas of competitive yeah. manufacturing and then yeah. might also create some corporate entities that Australians can invest in through our share market. But we're a long way away from doing that. So you mentioned there our migration. I think it's a it's one of those things that we've always sort of encouraged around the world. We're a desirable place to live and raise a family um, for, for many reasons. I just wonder whether, yes, there's going to be a short-term reduction to migration, but does Australia become more desirable post-COVID when you look at other countries around the world? Um, and does the government then just, you know, fall to that temptation of, I guess, relaxing migration rules and encouraging more and so we, got, we quickly go back to more than that couple of hundred thousand and we're growing even faster over the next decade than we, you know, to make up for lost time. Do you think that's going to happen or do you think 
you know, long term, we're going to have a, a, a big reduction to migration? That's a great unknown. Chris, but I mean, what we can say, obviously, in the, for the next two years, uh, based on the budget forecasts until the 2022-23 financial year, we're going to have net negative net migration. Yeah. And then it's going to come back slowly in 2022-23 and 2023-24. Um, and that may well be right. Uh, I think you're right to say that Australia will be viewed overseas as a more desirable place in which to live because of the comparative success that we in New Zealand have had in managing and containing the virus, and at, by comparison with other countries, seemingly little economic cost. Yeah? Mm. And neither Australia nor New Zealand is going to have public debt of over 100% of GDP, as the US and many European countries and Japan are going to have. Not that Japan is a migration country anyway, but you know, people are going to think in those countries that at some point they're going to be smacked with big tax increases to pay down that enormous level of debt. Whereas yeah. if you look at Australia and New Zealand, you know, we're going to have public debt of you know 35, 45% of GDP. That's manageable, especially at very low interest rates, no need for swinging tax increases or cuts in spending to get that level of debt down and mm. a nice climate. Um, you know, some parts of Australia probably become less habitable as a result of climate change, but you know, other places, including here in Tasmania, will be less cold, South Island of New Zealand likewise. But <laughs> I suspect more people will want to come here. The question which you then ask very uh, appropriately is, well, will the government let them, given that you know we, unlike Europe and the United States, are able to exercise some control over who comes here and mm. Howard famously said the circumstances in which they come. And um, my guess is that if we still have high unemployment, yeah, that's the which case, we do, which is, what we, which is what the Reserve Bank is worried about, if we do still have you know 5 or 6% unemployment, then the government isn't going to let the migration intake go back to where it once was. Yeah. Mm. Um, another factor might be foreign students. You know, foreign students make up a significant proportion of our migration yeah, right. impact. And, you know, it, it looks as though the Chinese government is going to actively discourage, if not outrightly prevent, Chinese citizens <laughs> from coming here as students because they're going to, I mean, it'll be a lie, of course, but, you know, communist <laughs> dictatorships and others do lie to their people. Uh, you know, they're saying it's not safe. You know, I mean, that's, mm. that's bollocks to yeah. put it mm. crudely. But, you know, they, they, you know, if they say to their citizens, don't go to Australia, um, then the, the, their students won't come here and that'll affect our mm. population growth too. And, you know, we might take more from India or, you know, Indonesia or other countries like that, but it wouldn't make up for the numbers that we're getting from China. So, you know, it, it may be that we've got high unemployment and that's a constraint. The other thing is, of course, that if the government were to, let's say the employment situation allowed the government to contemplate having a migration intake at least as big as the one we had pre-COVID, that might then revive the debates that we were having in the three or four years prior to the onset That's of COVID right. about what impact migration was having on house prices, on uh, congestion in our congestion. trains and on our roads. And, you know, were the, I mean, this, I don't think this was ever true, but there are always some people who argue that migrants are taking Australian jobs. You know, I think in this country, overwhelmingly, the evidence is that migrants create more jobs than they take. And yeah. that's, that's less true in the US or Europe, where a lot of the migration goes to the bottom end of the labour market. And it does have a depressing impact on the wages of lower income people. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Trump has been popular with people who you might have thought would have voted yeah. for the Democrats, because you know, Trump's restrictions on immigration 
have helped boost the wages of the lowest income Americans. I mean, one of the few things that Trump says, which is actually true, (laughs) is that wages of low income workers in America during his term in office have increased at their fastest rate since the 1960s. Now, a lot of that's probably not due to him, but rather is a continuation of things that happened under the Obama administration or were driven by the Federal Reserve, by monetary policy rather than Trump. But certainly Trump's restrictions on immigration of low-income people, low-skilled people, have have made a contribution there. Whereas in Australia, uh, you you generally don't get into the country uh, unless you have high skills, high income, or a prospect of winning a gold medal for Australia at the Olympics. And, um, (laughs) you know, so, uh, but nonetheless, I mean, even people who come here with lots of money um, or who immediately yeah. walk into a job, you know, they're driving on our roads and they're bidding up the price of our houses. And there was a sort of growing discontent among mm. parts of the Australian electorate within, and I'm talking about the people who voted for Paul and Hanson for entirely different reasons, but in our cities, there was some growing discontent about the impact that migration was having just sort of on 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 the ease of living and on the cost of living. On that, I mean, it, totally the opposite to Pauline Hanson voters, but Greens voters, there was a lot of uh, a lot of billboards around the last state election in New South Wales around about that, talking about, you know, yeah. how many do we need? You know, this you're paying yeah. the price, et cetera, et cetera, congestion. How long do you want to sit in this traffic jam for? Right. And, and the Greens are funny like that, aren't they, Veronica, because they, they would let every refugee who wants to come into the country in. You know, they 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 sort of completely open borders for people who want to get on a boat and come here. But, yeah. you know, people with skills and money, um, you know, the Greens want to keep them out. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, you know, remorselessly <laughs> anti-Green or anything like that. You know, what, what, yeah. I, what I'm alert to is hypocrisy on the part of politicians and politicians <laughs> across the political spectrum give me plenty of material to work with on that. But I, I, think it, I, I think it is a bit hypocritical of the Greens to, mm. on the one hand, say, you know, we should let every refugee or asylum seeker who wants to come yeah. here come here. But on the other hand, we should pull the drawbridge up for migrants mm. who can actually, from the day they get here, make a significant positive contribution to our economy. Now, on that, because you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, we've got to look for other ways in which to grow the economy and, and sort of going back to that sort of, you know, when we first started talking about, well, are we looking at an economic recovery and to the back to normal or a new reality? Do we have to re look at our attitude towards growth. You know, I've heard it quite often lately that the only uh, unchecked growth in in nature is cancer. And so, you know, do we have to change our relationship and our expectation around growth? Because is it really feasible that we can continue to grow forever? I I suspect the answer to that very profound question, Veronica, in the long run is probably no. But as Maynard Keynes famously said, in the long run, we're all dead. Um, (laughs) And so between now and then, I think the idea that we can just give up on economic growth is uh, runs into conflict with the fundamental human desire, (laughs) uh, that our children have better lives than we do. You know, mm. and I mean, I, I don't mean to sound trite in saying this, but you know, something that has driven mm. almost every branch of humanity uh, from the time we sort of stopped dragging our knuckles on the ground is 
the desire that our children will have better lives than we do. And mm. I mean, ultimately, you know, uh, unless either you have, are of Indigenous descent in some way, uh, and I'm certainly not, you know, the reason we're all here is because somewhere in our family tree, someone thought that they and their descendants would have a better life if they came from Europe or America or China or, or a wherever it was. <laughs> yeah, or a convict, yeah. And, of course, all the convicts who Except came out here, you know, I mean, even they, you know, they would acknowledge, their descendants would acknowledge that, you know, they've had a better life here as a result of their ancestors being sent out in chains. And, of course, you know, there are some people who deliberately committed crimes, you know, and this has been well documented in Ireland in particular. Women who committed minor crimes, which they knew would not get them hanged, but which would get them transported to New South Wales or Van Diemen's Land because they seriously believed that they'd had a better life. Wow. You know, after mm. they'd done their seven years. And, you know, that, I mean, enough stories mm -hmm. would get back that, you know, I mean, for, for all the attempts, say here in Tasmania, for example, we all know about Port Arthur and what a dreadful place that was. But you only ever went to Port Arthur if you committed another crime once you were hit. And most of the convicts who came to Tasmania, like most of the convicts who came from New South Wales, you know, they weren't breaking up rocks in chain gangs. Most of them, if they were men, they were working on farms. And if they were women, mm. they were domestic servants. And I, 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 I'm not, I don't want to pretend that life was clover for them. You know, some of them were sexually abused or otherwise mistreated by nasty employers. But nearly all of them will have known that their kids would have been better off than if they'd stayed bog Irish poor or, you know, lived in, mm. lived in some of the slums in England. And, uh, yeah, but even apart from Australia, you know, all the people who migrate to the United States from wherever they do, you know, and all the people who are now migrating from or trying to migrate from the Middle East and Africa to Europe, what they're all motivated by is the same thing that brought our ancestors to Australia, which is the belief that uh, the desire to provide a better life for their kids and grandkids than the one they've had the, their own. And you can't do that without economic growth. Yeah? Now, what I think is that it, it's absolutely true, I wouldn't argue this for a moment, that there are environmental and other natural constraints on the rate at which we can exploit the world's natural resources and pump crap into the atmosphere and the waters, you know, mm. whether it's CO2 or other types of pollution. There are real constraints, biting constraints on, mm. uh, you know, I'm not necessarily sign up for people who think it's a climate emergency, that's an emotional term, but I'm absolutely one of those who think that there is an urgent need for countries like Australia to do things that reduce our emissions of CO2 and methane and all that sort of stuff, and in other ways to reduce the toll we take on our environment. But mm. to me, what that means is that, you know, we look at um, ways that are less resource intensive of making goods, you know, and that includes, you know, making as rapid a transition as we can to renewable energy. And it also means, you know, that uh, we attach value to services. You know, there tends to be this view, and it's not confined to the conservative side of politics, it's on the Labor side as well. People seem to think there's something inherently more noble about making something that you can drop on your foot, about making goods, as opposed to services, which people tend to deride as services are just taken in each other's washing and flipping hamburgers. Mm. And, and, you know, the hypocrisy of that becomes apparent when you ask people, what do you want your children to do? You know, do you want your kids to be screwing nuts on the wheels of Holdens or sewing buttons on shirts? You know, that is to say, manufacturing jobs. No, mo you know, most people want their kids to be, you know, white collar workers. And they want them, especially if they're smart, to, you know, to be doctors and lawyers and things like that. Mm. 
And yet the same people will often say, oh, we don't want to be a service economy because, you know, there's no value added in that. That's just flipping hamburgers and taking in each other's washing. I mean, that's a seriously misguided view. Mm. And, you know, so, you know, there is going to be an enormous demand for services in areas like aged and disability care, for example, and the two royal commissions are going to have a lot to say about that when those reports come out. So, you know, we're, we're going to, what we need to do is to think about um, how can we grow the services side of our economy in ways that not only provide well-paid jobs for people who want professional careers, but we also need to think about you know services jobs for the same sort of people who in years gone by would have been screwing nuts on the wheels of Holdens and sewing yeah. buttons on T-shirts because you know there is a spectrum of human capabilities. And there are always going to be people who, through no fault of their own, don't have the skills and talents to you know, be earning the equivalent of $150,000 a year, who are going to be in minimum or low-wage jobs. And you know, they're entitled to the same sort of dignity of a regular income as you know, people doing highly paid white-collar jobs. Uh, but mm. we shouldn't assume that all of those jobs have to be in manufacturing or mining or construction. You know, some of them are going to be in aged care for example. And, you know, w- what we need to do is to create a world in which people recognize that looking after old people is a worthwhile thing to do and should be properly yeah. paid and, you know, shouldn't be insecure, casual employment, but should be something that, you know, regarded is a legitimate, worthwhile and admirable thing to do, even if the pay isn't mm. good. You know, a bit like the way we currently think about teaching and nursing, you know, which probably yep. most people who do teaching and nursing are underpaid, but no one really looks down on teachers or nurses. And, you know, so part of the the world that is post-COVID, but the world which also takes account of the kind of points you make, Veronica, about the environmental, ecological and other natural constraints on our ability to deplete or poison the world's resources and our habitat, uh, part of it is, you know, looking at forms of economic growth that mm. don't pollute, that don't the the world's limited natural resources. And I think we can do that, but we have to change our mindset in order to do it sensibly. So so much there from a philosophical point of view and, you know, ways that the economy could move in that direction. I just have a little bit of a, uh, won't hold my breath that the the government's that smart to do those changes, but. Neither am I, neither am I, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got any uh, property dumbo for us just to wrap this up today? Well, I've thought about that uh, since you know, we, we initially talked about this conversation and, you know, it's a, not having been directly in the property business myself and observing individual yep. people do, I can only reflect that, you know, my only – I've been very lucky with the um, purchases I've made of my own homes, you know, done mm. very well out of those. I am in some ways one of the smartest property investment decisions I ever made was the third home I bought, uh, or second home for me and my wife that we bought in Malvern East in Melbourne in 1995 and sold in 2015. So we were there, I suppose, for about 20 years, which helped pay yep. for the, the, the spread that we now have in, in Tasmania. And, and, and that's it. So that was smart. But I did earlier than that, make the mistake of buying a one bedroom flat in East St Kilda next door to the house that uh, we were living in at the time. And, you know, it was just opportunistic. The flat next door came up for sale. I bid for it, bought it, 
um, and ended up selling it three years later for about $20,000 less than I paid for it. Um, you know, that wasn't <laughs> such a smart investment decision. Maybe the second mm. investment decision was selling it in 1992 rather than hanging on for it, for hanging on to it for another 10 years. Um, in yep. which case, I probably would have doubled my money. So, you know, maybe they were two badly timed investment decisions that I've made. Although one of the reasons why we sold the investment property was so that we didn't have to borrow so much to buy the house in Melbourne East. Um, that ended up being one of the smartest decisions we ever made. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, quite a bit there, actually. Yeah, there's home bias. There's also that idea that, <laughs> and, and a lot of people we've seen, certainly from 2016 when uh, ASIC sort of tightened up a lot of investment lending, a lot of our clients in particular that wanted to upgrade their family home or even renovate their family home were unable to because of some of those investment uh, purchases that they'd made when money was free and easy. So it sounds like you sort of got caught a little bit in the same way there. Well, it's also, I mean, the other fundamental lesson, I, I, I don't think this is a mistake I've made again, but a mistake a lot of people make is selling at the bottom of markets. Mm. Yeah. So, and we've seen this happen so often in the share market, particularly during the global financial crisis, that yeah. you know, uh, people are doing quite well and the market's been, whether it's property or shares, and then you know, a crash happens. And I mean, obviously, share prices are much more volatile than property prices. But you know, during the financial crisis, I think mm. you know, Australia, the Australian share market dropped more than 40%. And the number of people who thought, oh, oh my God, shares are stuffed, I'd better sell out. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, they you know, not only crystallise that great big loss, but they then miss out on the recovery. Yes. And the same <laughs> thing happened in 1987 as well, too. You know, I remember that stock market crash very well, and it dropped 25 percent in a day. And you know, the number of people who sold off sold at the bottom. Mm. You know, and you know, you, it, of course, you. I mean, for it, there are some people who are incredibly smart and are able to anticipate big movements in markets and get out before they happen. You know, so they they sell just before the peak and then they start buying just before the bottom and they're the ones who end up, you know, um, spending the latter 30 years of their life playing golf or fishing or whatever they want to do with their spare time rather than actually working. But most of us, including me, most of us can't do that. We can't time markets. And yet many of us make the mistake that I did. You know, of sort of mm. buying near the peak and selling at the trough, and yeah. that's 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 not a that's not a good way to make money. No, absolutely true. So those laggards, the laggards are getting a bit late, and then they panic. And you know, we do see. Oh, we saw it at the beginning of uh, lockdowns in in certainly in Sydney, and I've heard anecdotally elsewhere as well. You're these panic panic sell. Um, you know, this property is a long game and, and right. buying it, if you bought with the fundamentals in place with good long-term goals and, and you could stay the course if you do that. But if you buy because you're trying to jump on the bandwagon that everybody else is on and then you think, shit, I've got to get off this bandwagon <laughs> that everyone else is getting off, then, you know, you're going to be tossed around, uh, you know, the vagaries of the market. Look, Saul, that's been such an interesting conversation today. Thank you so much for your time and your your analysis and your insights. We really appreciate that. No, that's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you, Saul. Really appreciate it. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Just following on from Saul's Dumbo. And I always love it when the guests come in with their own Dumbo, which is great. But he also, he talked about um, a good decision that he'd made, which is the house in Malvern East, I think he said, uh, yep. that they sold and, and after 20 years. And it allowed them to buy and move to Tasmania and buy the, the sort of home that he could you know, ease back in, I would imagine. And he's still working, but it sounds like he's got a very different life. So. 
And that sort of leads me to think, okay, well, how do we measure how well we've done in property? I mean, I've said it many times on this podcast. I get a lot of people say to me, oh, I've done really well in property. And I always ask them, how have you measured that? And I, well, I made money. Mm. And, and have you counted the costs out of that? Have you taken out the acquisition costs, the holding costs? Have you looked at opportunity cost? Um, have you really compared, you know, what you could have spent your money on back when you bought that property and, and, and you know, what it's worth now compared to other opportunities that you may or may not have had. Um, and also, how have you actually determined whether you made money when you haven't actually sold it? So, you know, there's there's a very a, a lack of rigour, shall we say, around a lot of people and their claims that they've done well in property. But I guess for the one thing with Saul, I wasn't going to quiz him too much. Well, you know, what was your growth over those 20 years and how, could you, how did you compare that to growth and other assets you could have bought and sold, blah, blah, blah. You know, one of the reasons that we look to property as something to invest in, and certainly in our homes as well, where you've got that lovely tax advantages around that, is because as you get older, um, you know, the power of compounding, the, the, the benefit of time, and if you have made good decisions, obviously, you are going to get an asset that goes up in value, but it's about the freedom that that brings, the opportunities and the options that are afforded to you you know, as you get sort of in your 50s and 60s and decide that you want to ease back and working and you might want to relocate, particularly at the moment with COVID and, and people taking advantage of the opportunity to actually get out of the city if that's what they want to do. If you've made good decisions in property, your measurement, you know, I like to look at a measurement and say, well, my my dollar, my percentage is better, worse than average um, compared to other options. And I think that you do need to look at that. But I also think that, you know, getting the satisfaction of being able to achieve what your long-term dreams are, that's also a really good tick. Um, and you don't necessarily have to compare with what else you could have done if you managed to achieve what you were after and what your goal was in the first place. Yeah, I mean, well, it sounds like in his scenario, he's bought a house in Mulvanese. I imagine he would have bought pretty decent house there, um, <laughs> knowing his sort of work history, um, what he probably was earning in the in the 90s. Um and yeah, and that's that house is probably done, you know, you know, three, four, five times probably what he paid. So, uh, and then he's gone and moved to Tasmania. So, downsizing's been, you know, what he could get for his money there versus what he was getting in Malvinese would be dramatically different, and probably freed up capital to to live off as well and things like that. So, yeah, if if that if that's what you want, for example, to downsize out of a capital city and free up money to live on in retirement, then that's what you should measure your success on. And um, Whereas if you wanted to stay in, in Melbourne, maybe, and he wanted to upsize into something else in retirement, maybe he wouldn't be feeling as it's done so well for him because he's having to buy within the same market. So it's, it's a good point. And especially with investors, I think you're right. Yes. I think most investors have no idea of measuring um, and they'll just say that it's gone up and they've built equity in those portfolios. And I think the biggest frustration I see is, is a lot of the time they build equities, they've actually just paid the mortgage off. They've actually paid principal off and that's saving. It's not growth you're making. It's actually just building equity via saving, which isn't doesn't mean the property's worked for you. It means you've just saved, which um, the property hasn't done the, the heavy lifting your savings has. So, um, yeah, it's a very good one to, to chat about. Yeah. Right. Well. That's it for this episode. It's a long one, but there's been such amazing content. So it's been a fabulous chat. Hope you've enjoyed it.
Please join us for our next episode. We're going to explore whether first home buyers should be allowed to access their super in order to buy a home. And if so, under what circumstances does it make sense? We'll be joined by Brendan Coates from the Grattan Institute and we'll also tackle the general subject of superannuation. Is our current level of compulsory super adequate? And what role does home ownership play versus super in the financial position of retirees? If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.